I'm Bertie. And I'm Sam. This is the History Between Bites podcast, the podcast where we talk about your favorite foods and where they come from. Today's episode is on tomatoes. We'll talk about moving from the Americas into the old world, origins, uses, um, and of course we're going to shit on some colonialists on the way. <laughs> then we'll sample two recipes using tomatoes. One from antiquity and one from today. Get comfy, grab, grab a, a snack, snack, and get, get ready, ready for History Between Bites. Okay, so history of the tomato was super fun to research and I really have to like yada yada over a lot of stuff because I did not expect it to be as extensive as it was. So um, this is a like comprehensive introduction to the history of the tomato. Um, And so the, the history of the tomato kind of reads like a Hollywood film. What? It starts from humble beginnings, small and innocuous. It's often overlooked for its prettier relative. Then comes the opportunity and form of destruction, and it's shipped away from its homeland to a place where people both love and fear it. Over time, the influence of its ships from the monarchs and clergy to be welcomed and beloved by the people. It's the people's food, if so you it's, will. So it's Hedy Lamar. Yeah. (laughs) In the end, it returns to its homeland, changed, but somehow also the same. And it welcomed and grows to be the most popular vegetable uh, fruit fruit in the land. Knowledge is knowing tomato is a fruit, and wisdom is not putting it in your fruit salad. Yes, yes. But I will also tell you why we absolutely know that it's a fruit. And that's a fun story. It's legally a fruit. Well, yeah, the seeds are on the inside. Yeah, no, but it's legally a fruit. Wait. <laughs> wait. Yeah, we'll get there. You just you just wait for that one. Uh, but really, the tomato has probably one of the most interesting and fascinating stories. Um, and it's intertwined with what we call the age of exploration. That sounds like colonizer shit. Yeah. Um, I like to call it what it is and not whitewash this period as a moment of European exploring uh, and call it the the age of exploitation because that's what it actually was. Um, No one is going around exploring Dora style just to see what's out there. They're they're going with the intention of pulling any and everything they can out of a region. Yeah, like the Spaniards were after golden souls. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So the tomato comes to, uh, the story of the tomato comes from us, from conquerors and colonizers, uh, European missionaries, which has a limit to the way in which we can study the tomato, right? The sources, the written sources that we have are post-Columbian interactions, but it's not lost completely. So post-Columbian interactions... Yeah, post that dick coming here and fucking shit up. That guy. <laughs> Told you they'd be shitting on colonists. It was just such a gentle way of noting that. Well, I just finished the script a little bit ago, and I feel like I'm always in like my academic head when I'm writing, uh, which is why when I read it here, it sometimes doesn't sound like my voice voice, because it's my 
teacher voice. And so, yeah, I have to be a little bit kind at first before I just, like, come out and call him, like... A genocidal maniac. Yeah. Christopher Cunt Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's got that... It's got that J.K. Rowling alliteration work going. So, you know. It's the Salazar Slytherin of the real world. <laughs> We're going to shit on J.K. Rowling at some point, too, so whatevs. Um, I don't know how he can fit it into food, but I'm down. Oh, it's going to happen. I mean, there's food all over Harry Potter. That's Patreon stuff. We'll make Harry Potter foods. Patreon stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Hop over to Patreon and be a Patreon. Yes. Okay, so (laughs) tomatoes. I'm going to butcher some of these words, so just hang in there, because as much as I know Latin, I don't know Latin. So the tomatoes are part of the Solanacea family, uh, which includes potatoes, eggplants, petunia, tobacco, and of course, deadly nightshade. Petunia. (laughs) One of these things is not like the other. Absolutely not like the other. So tomatoes range in color from green, yellow, red... Um, and size range from the size of a blueberry to an average adult fist. So there's a wide array of different styles um, and sort of geniuses or whatever of tomatoes. I really want to grow 4th of July tomatoes. The fuck is a 4th of July tomato? I love I don't know this. It's my topic. It's tiny. It's tiny, just like... They're teeny weeny. Just like all the promises made on the 4th of July... They're not a lie, Sam. They're just small. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, all men are created equal. It was just that amount of men. It was the 4th of July size amount of men. (laughs) Wasps. I love this. This makes so so much sense. Christopher Columbus was what? Spanish? He was Italian. Who sailed under the um, Spanish flag. Yeah, Ferdinand and Isabella. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. The Papists? We can uh, just call them the Papists. Yeah, the worst people in history. Some of the worst people. I mean, I was going to say, Hitler exists. Yeah, but they would have... If Hitler and Ferdinand and Isabella had lived at the same time, they would have just been hanging out together. Like, their <laughs> plots were very much aligned. The Inquisition and the expulsion of Jews. Hitler was just like, good idea. I'm going to take Let's a step, that step farther. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great idea, guys. Let's workshop it a little bit. How about, instead of just making them somebody else's problem, we make them nobody's problem? Yeah. I see how that conversation would have gone. Yeah, yeah. And Ferdinand and Isabella would have been absolutely on board with the Holocaust, and Hitler would have only not been able to do Holocausty stuff in 1492 because they didn't have the technology then that they had in they would have found a way. I'm sure, yeah. Well, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And Nazis were willful. Anywho. <laughs> um, so, tomatoes are indigenous to the New World. So, that would be North and South um, America. Specifically, the Pacific Coast region um, in South America. So, there's evidence of the presence in the Andes Mountains, the Galapagos Islands, um, and growing... From northern Chile all the way to the Peru-Ecuador region. So really along that whole um, western coast of South America. It's believed that 
a pre-domestication happen in the Indian region before the spreading to greater Mesoamerican region. It is even believed that the ancient uh, Olmec villages planted tomatoes, which is really cool. The Olmecs are like the ones that have like the giant head statues. Super cool. Uh, However, the most extensive and sophisticated version of cultivation and domestication of these yummy, yummy fruits was in Mexico with the Aztec people. So for us, literally like neighbors, they're like, like from right there. Like we could, we could see their homeland out your window right now, which is really cool. That is really cool. Yeah. They adopted the plant easier than other Mesoamerican cultures, uh, probably because it was already similar to the very familiar tomatillo. The word tomato actually comes from the Nahuatl word tomato, um, T-L. And it's just generic for globus fruit or berry with seeds and watery flesh. Tomato, waddle, waddle, waddle. Yes. In 1571, a Nahuatl to Spanish dictionary, uh, it was referred to as a certain fruit used to add sour flavor to stews and sauces. Sour almost feels like a mistranslation. Yeah. I've never tasted a, a tomato and said, huh, that's sour. But oddly enough... That's the word that's used a lot in the descriptions of tomatoes before they make their way into, like, Italy. Huh. Um, The TL ending of tomato was later Europeanized by dropping the TL ending and replacing it with an E, and thus the Spanish word became tomate. This is a common practice for Nahuatl nouns as they were incorporated into the Spanish language. So um, pretty indicative of what was happening with any words from the New World. Tomatoes were among the many fruits and vegetables eaten in the New World. Uh, They also ate squash, sweet potatoes, regular potatoes, peppers, beans, um, an array of meats that was interesting. So there was turkey and dog and humans, but we'll get there in a second. Casual cannibalism. It was sacrificial and religious and only for the elites. So it wasn't like a common practice, but... Yes. So not casual cannibalism. Not casual cannibalism. No. That's a really good band name. <laughs> casual cannibalism. <laughs> Aaron listens to a metal band called Cannibal Corpse. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Mr. Birdie uh, so listens. So Topher. He's already been introduced on the pod, so oh, it's Topher fine. listens to it, too. I don't understand it. I think he was telling me, and I will fact check this um, or edit it in post if it's wrong, uh, but he was saying that the lead singer of Cannibal Corpse is a big fan of the claw toy machines. Yes, I've seen that. And he just like empties them out like crazy. And because he doesn't actually give a shit about the toys, he donates them to children's hospitals. Yep. And I'm like, yeah, the Cannibal Corpse Mm -hmm. donates stuffies to babies i, I mean love it. i mean come on metal like metal heads are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet they absolutely are and it just makes you want to listen to the band even more because you know like secretly that even though they're singing of like death and destruction and satan there's like but i do have stuffies <laughs> i just hate their sound like i have nothing against them i just don't like their music i don't think i've really listened to it i just knew the story Aaron has played it for me a couple times, and we're just like, cool. Yeah, I'm like Thanks. that with Lamb of God. Yeah, so, I can see that. I, the first time I ever heard them was in concert, which you would think is kind of the, like no. the, the, the best way, or at least a good way to see them. 
Uh, no, I wasn't really impressed. I don't know. He smoked on stage the whole time. Ew. Yeah. yeah like yeah. cigarettes? Yeah. Ew. Yeah, yeah. Bruh. Yeah. There are better ways, safer ways to get your voice to growl. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> okay. So, tomatoes. Sorry. Uh, but, right. So, they're eating squash, sweet potatoes, regular potatoes, peppers, and beans. Um, they, the tomatoes would have been eaten in sauces or salsas, and we did make one today. It would have been in soups, often uh, included in the soups to offset the bite of the chilies while adding a pleasant tartness, at least according to a 1544 source by Francisco Cervantes de Salazar, um, the founder of the University of Mexico. Fantastic. Um, and this is, uh, and there's speculation that the tomato would have been included in soups also containing human flesh, like I just mentioned. Um, and we'll talk about that later because the soups that we're making today have a possible origin as cannibal soups. And I didn't tell you that before we made them. <laughs> and now they're made. <laughs> I see why you were like, they traditionally have pork. Yeah. Like, long pig? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they switched to pork when um, Spain put the, like, law that you can't eat humans anymore, and the closest meat to the taste of humans is pig. Is pig. But I did bastardize the old school dish today and made it with chicken. But I made it with chicken thigh, and this, I told you I was going to tell you why I made it with the chicken thigh. So, fasole... They would sacrifice a person, a cleric, an enemy, whatever, and the cut of human meat that was considered the best cut of human meat that they would put into their possible pozole or some version of a stewed dish with corn and tomatoes and chilies was the thigh. So the traditional dish that we have on the stove right now has chicken thighs in it versus the modern one that has a chicken breast in it. Because I'm an ass, and I wanted to see this face live. Live <laughs> and on not, air. I was not about to not do that on air. I was like, I'm saving all of the cannibalistic things for when we record. It's okay. I told you about slaughtering chickens so I could see your face. That is true. That is very true. It was really fun. Listen, she, she alludes to a washing machine. We're not going anymore in depth. <laughs> Look it up yourself, my friends. Look it up on small, small scale farming, because that's my experience. I don't do the industrial thing. <laughs> Tomatoes would have been eaten um, in a number of ways, but also would have been eaten with corn. Right? Maize is the um, staple of the region. Corn is uh, what's associated with mythology, where tomato doesn't really get the same sort of treatment as corn does. Um, it's really just another plant that grows amongst the maize that they can eat. Um, so while undoubtedly the tomato would have been folded into a corn tortilla with other things, we don't have any sort of reference from the old world specifically regarding tomatoes because they allocated their art to mythology and things that were important to them and not just like, here's what I mean. Here's another plant. The general history of things of New Spain, New Spain, um, (laughs) Bernardino de Sahagún. Now, this is a um, Spanish missionary, Sahagún, and he's probably, he's often written about in, like, a positive light. He went to the New World uh, with the anticipation of maybe being there for a couple of years. He was there to, of course, convert, 
And when he came here, not there, because we're literally here, uh, when he came here, he sort of fell in love with the people and the traditions in a way that he still wanted to convert, because Christianity is still something that they quote-unquote need. But he was sort of sensitive and um, empathetic to the peoples as well. And so he had um, written down um, a sort of notes of their worlds. His writings wouldn't be popularized until long after his death because the Crown did not want to publicly release any of his works because of how sympathetic he was to indigenous populations. And they said that doesn't track with rape and murder and pillage and theft. So a lot of that was left out. But this, of course, the source does end up surviving. And so he writes about the tomatoes. We're going to say tomato 75 times here, so just hang in there. So, in a general history of New Spain, he writes, Large tomatoes, small tomatoes, green tomatoes, lead tomatoes, thin tomatoes, sweet tomatoes, serpent tomatoes, nipple-shaped tomatoes, coyote tomatoes, sand tomatoes, and those which are yellow, very yellow, quite yellow, red, very red, quite red, quite ruddy, bright red, reddish, and rosy dawn color. Those are the tomatoes that are available in your Aztec local market. Yeah, so clearly the tomato was something that was definitely cultivated, definitely eaten, and definitely sold in local markets within the decade following the conquest. So this this source comes from, like, right there. Other than the colonial sources of tomatoes, we have no no formal recipes from pre-Columbian Mesoamerica. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. I want to read... This, uh, one of the sources I used today was 10 Tomatoes That Changed the World by William Alexander. The book is, it's just, it's just gold. Like, it's so perfectly written. It has, like, academia and sources and all of that without any of that tone. Like, the whole thing is written kind of like a travel journal a little bit, but then there's information and sources and all this stuff along the way. It's just, it's amazing. It was a delight to read. Before I get into exactly what happens upon the Spaniard arrival and the colonization, I have to read this preface for you, really for our audience, because I already read it for you. But here we go. Tenochtitlan, Mexico, July 1st, 1520. The Spanish conquistador Hernando Cortez had miscalculated badly, having massacred and connived his way into the Aztec island capital of Tenochtitlan. Seven months earlier, he and his small army were in desperate straits. Montezuma, both his protector and his prisoner, was dead, struck by a stone hurled by a furious subject who now turned their rage against the invaders, which is also kind of a badass way to die, maybe? Yeah, that's a way to go. Um, Outnumbered, cut off from the mainland, and under siege, the conquistador saw but one hope of saving the lives of the 250 men. Should he fail, the dead soldiers would be the fortunate ones. The unlucky captives could look forward to having their still beating hearts ripped out of their chest. Pozole. <laughs> that's not in the preface, that's just me. Um, packing up all the stolen treasure they can carry. Stolen treasure that they can carry. The Spaniards staged a desperate midnight escape using portable bridges constructed in secret to span the breached causeways. The heavy load of gold proved unwieldy, however, winding up at the bottom of Lake Tecoco in an uncalculable loss of wealth, the likes of which the world has never seen. But Cortez would escape, regroup, and reconquer with a vengeance. 
Within 14 months, this one thriving civilization would be in ruins, having fallen victim to Spanish aggression, germ, and their insatiable lust for gold and silver. But the true treasure of Mexico, one that in the end would have an impact comparable to that of all the precious metals in the New World, would soon find its way on a ship to Europe to forever change the course of history. I am speaking, of course, of the tomato. It's so good. Like, that's the preface of this book. So just know that it's absolutely freaking beautiful and also just gave you a little bit of a glimpse of where we're going right now. And also, just adding this, fuck Hernando Cortez. 100%. Him and Columbus can go fuck right off together. I hope they're in the same lake in hell. Oh, yeah, that'd be nice. Although they might find that comforting. So I hope they're in the same lake, but, like, there's, they're separated by a large island that they think is Japan. Oh, no. But it's not. No, no. <laughs> I hope they're stuck right next to each other forever. Mm. Because that's a lot of ego in one very oh, small nice. space. Or, like, Greek soulmates where they're attached to the back. <laughs> I like it. I like it. This is good. So, upon the arrival of the Spaniards... Uh, traditional cuisine of the New World looked suspicious to them. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. These brave men were reluctant to try anything new, especially things served to them by the, quote, irreligious natives. <clears throat> uh-huh. They were also reluctant to eat local foods due to the chances of poisoning. Um, this is evident in manioc or yucca, which we were talking about earlier, um, which I haven't tried. But yucca, it's a starchy tuber. But it made colonizers sick because they didn't know that you had to peel it first. Yeah, yeah. So they're worried about poison and not just from, like, they're not so much worried about poison being poisoned from the people as just not knowing which plants you can and cannot eat. You know, this is solved by not being a dick to the local people. Right? And it probably doesn't help that indigenous people have a pretty good fucking reason to want to poison them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, what with genociding, raping, converting, stealing their people, enslaving, all the things. Killing them with disease slowly and terribly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But survival became a bigger issue, and soon the colonizers were forced to try new food. So, of course, they have to start eating indigenous foods to the Americas because they've run out of all of their hoity-toity Spanish bullshit. This is like ex- expats whining they can't cook good British food. Yeah. Overseas. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite. Good British food, that's a thing. I thought it was an oxymoron. <laughs> I'm just kidding. A lot of it is actually quite good if you add salt. Off topic, I went on my honeymoon in the UK, as as Sam knows, but not you, dear listener. We talked about it last episode. Oh, good. So you do know. Most of the food, I was like, this is not bland, exactly. It's well-seasoned. It's not well-salted. Makes sense. So as soon as you add a little salt, it was like, oh... They're all the flavors. Mm-hmm. It just sucks that it has to be on top. Yeah. As opposed to cooked into it, because that can bring out the flavors without actually tasting salty. Yes. Whereas if you add it afterwards, you're going to have the salt taste. Yep, pretty much. But, I don't know. Science. Uh, <laughs> it was also um, intermarriage was discussed a bit in the book, that when colonizers took indigenous wives. Wives. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That they had to start getting used to the way that their wives cooked. I think it was a really nice way of putting that. That's a really delicate way of saying we took them as sex slaves and made them our bang-made 
mom ace overseas. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then we didn't want to cook for ourselves or know how to, so we just uh, let them do it for us. And of then course we they were didn't stuck know how to cook for themselves. Tamales. They're stuck eating tamales. Like, that's a bad thing. Oh, no. Um, Not eating tamales. Yeah, no. Exactly. The story of the tomato in the New World is really just kind of, you know, it's it was just there. It was eaten. Uh, it was cooked into things, mainly soups and stews. And I think it's because of that high acidity, sour sort of aspect to it, mm-hmm. because that doesn't get cultivated out of it for some time. And it's not, it's not a staple, but it's not, not it's like, it's just, it's just there. It's part of the things that they would have eaten. It's like garlic in Northern Europe. It's probably there. They just don't eat it in everything like they yeah. do onion. Exactly. Um, and because our sources come from colonialists, the story of the tomato is going to move very quickly into Europe from here. So the tomato probably made its way to the old world as seeds, either with intention or as a stowaway. The plant definitely would not have been able to survive a trip from old uh, new world to old world, so seeds would have been the way to do that. It could have entered Europe through Spain as early as the 1500s, uh, but wouldn't be wildly cultivated until the 17th century. We have no idea when it actually came in, of course, because People are, it's not part of the thing that's listed. Yeah. uh, And ships are just kind of roaming around willy-nilly with all their things. So this um, was really prior to having detailed manifests and like having to declare at a port, these are the exact vegetables and things that I'm bringing into the country that could cause disease because this is prior to germ theory. Well, and it wasn't the focus. So the things that they would be putting in a ledger are going to be things that are gold and silver and like trade worthy and not slaves yeah not just you know oh well i have some of these these seeds that the royals can try some food in a couple of months kind of a thing so before this the only people eating any tomatoes in the old world again would have been royals or elites hell-bent on trying all the foods that they quote discovered in the (laughs) new world because they didn't discover anything especially if they're royals and elites because they certainly didn't go there and Discovery is a problematic term for me. Yeah. You can't walk somewhere that somebody else lives and has been on the land for forever and knows and say you discovered it. British Museum, please take notes. I don't know. You just, discovery can't be the word. Discovery implies that it was unknown before. It's unknown to you, but not to the vast amount of peoples here. But I digress. I like to do this in my, I told you about this in my class, Mm -hmm. where I had a student who was a little combative with my saying that I didn't like to use discovered. And so I just walked up and took their coffee off the desk (laughs) and put it on my table up in the front. And she looked at me like I was an ass. And I said, I just discovered your coffee. It's mine. I discovered it. And then I think she got it, but she also thought I was a dick, but it is what it is. I mean, that was a very long time ago. my, My students now are less, um, combative with things like this but right so the primary use for tomatoes in europe was as an ornamental plant in the gardens of elites which makes me so sad that like carly kind of had the same moment where it's like it's just there to be pretty when you realize you can fucking eat these and they're good but you know pretty 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 also yeah i can see tomatoes being pretty but the plant itself is like not terribly ornamental no and apparently the leaves smell like shit. I like the smell of tomato leaves. Because they smell like tomatoes. Yes. Yeah, but apparently 
back then, people were all talking about how the leaves smelled horrible. <sighs> and the tomato wouldn't look like... Uh, listeners, you probably have the idea of, like, the grocery store tomato in your head right now. Smooth and round and kind of orangey. That is not the tomato we're talking about. And even, like, an heirloom tomato is closer because it has that, like, sort of rib, like ribbing and... It looks ugly. Yeah, and, like, it has, like... It looks like a pumpkin or like a squash with like the different bumps on it. That's that's the tomato we're talking about. Oh man, purple Cherokees. They're so good. Yeah, we're definitely talking more of like heirloom, big, um, sort of quartered tomatoes. Segmented. 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 That's, that's the a word. word. Thank you. So in 1592, a gardener priest, because those are a thing, um, named Giorgio de los Rios, uh, noted that tomatoes had ribbed sections that turned red and had seeds. The plant lasted for two to three years and required a lot of water. He said that they would be good in sauces, but made specific mention that he never tried them. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, this would be good in a sauce. I've never eaten it. Yeah, 100%. Tomatoes were in a purchase document of the Hospital uh, de la Sangre in Seville in 1608, but they were never recorded again. So they probably didn't like them or didn't know what to do with them. A lot of the reason why tomato doesn't take off is because they don't know what to do with it, right? It has kind of a hardy skin and a soft, wet inside. There is, like, meat to the tomato, but, like, you know, do you peel it? Do you not peel it? Do you keep the skin? Like, And then the idea that it could go bad in, like, two days fucked them up for some reason. There's so many sources that are like, the tomato is plump and hard and then it ripens and then it goes to rot, like, right away and they were just like, we can't do anything with that. The second that it's ripe, it's bad. Avocados. <laughs> From Mexico. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I live in Southern California. That is a commercial here, so. See, I didn't know that because we don't really watch yeah, TV yeah, TV. Yeah. Avocados from Mexico. My God. <laughs> uh, no, that's just what, that's like the complaint about avocados is like, oh, I'm not ripe. I'm not ripe. I'm not ripe. I'm ripe. I'm rotten. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just get good, I guess, at figuring out how to eat them. I eat them all the time. Get good, scrub. <laughs> <laughs> I put them in smoothies. I think they're avocados? delicious. Yeah. Avocado, banana, like chocolate syrup, <laughs> vanilla ice cream. So, like, how do, you, how do you say things that make perfect <laughs> sense and should not make me feel like I've just seen a whole new dimension to the world, but an avocado in a smoothie is like, the fuck? I've never thought of this. It's delicious. Yeah. It's if funny. you want to make, like, a, a healthier smoothie, avocado, banana, spinach. Usually I do either apple or grapefruit, grape juice concentrate, okay. just like a little bit, and some honey. That's amazing. It's really also. Good. I don't really like, but dairy and I have a love hate, anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't like yogurt. I've never liked yogurt in my smoothies. And I'm thinking avocado would have been a perfect substitute. Yeah, creamy fatty. I'll make one for you at some point. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Yay. Um, okay. So uh, right. So they're never recorded again at this hospital. A menu in 1659 from the house of Aguilar in Montillo has tomatoes with chicken. Stewed tomatoes with hard-boiled eggs um, included it in it as part of its lunch menu. 
And while the tomato held a moment of royal intrigue, uh, it falls from the pedestal in Spain and becomes more of a food for the commoners over time. <laughs> it was kind of hard for an acidic tart and precariously ripe fruit to compete with, say, uh, chocolate. I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So chocolate becomes the, like, new, the new world thing to eat and cook with, where tomatoes uh, end up being, like, well, you can't afford chocolate, so there you go. And they're easy to grow, especially in Spain and later Italy. There's a variety of tomato called chocolate tomatoes, and they are, they are sweet and rich and, like, a heavy umami on the after, and they are very good. Shout out to Tara, who grew them, and I'm pretty sure I ate at least one of her plants completely clean on those. <laughs> nice. So, yeah. That sounds amazing. I just, like, I'm telling you, I'm making a garden in that backyard of mine. I've uh-huh. just decided it's happening, um, and I'm just putting together a list of seeds that I need to buy. because Tomatoes. So yeah, many. Oh, so many tomatoes. tomatoes. Oh my goodness. So many tomatoes. Uh, but the tomatoes made their way into the everyday diet of Spain, following the food scarcities in the 17th century, when De Spain decided to expel all the moriscos, or the Muslims who were forcefully converted to Christianity. Because, surprise, conversion doesn't actually ward off bigotry and racism. Weird, you mean assimilation doesn't fucking work? Not when you're still a dick. <laughs> Like, they force... So, the Inquisition happens. uh, Which nobody expects. Yeah, so we're at 17th century for this. So, the Inquisition happens late 1400s. So, 300 years later, the people who were forced to convert or leave or die during the late 14, early 1500s, who actually converted to save their lives and now have been living 300 years as Christians, still not considered Christians, and now they need to leave too. Yeah, racism runs deep in Europe, yo. I'm shocked. I'm shocked, I tell you. Yes. You mean the ones that came over here and took over lands that didn't have white people? And were like, this is white people land now. And they're like, no? And we said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we gave them smallpox blankets. Yeah. To make sure it was a, uh, yeah. 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 We said, hey, you're Muslim. Do you want to die or do you want to love Jesus? And some of them said, fuck it, I'm going to go the Jesus route because I probably have kids and a family and I don't really want to die. And then they thought they were safe because they're Christian and they've been Christian for a bajillion years. And then, surprise, it's like, no, actually, it wasn't about religion. It's about ethnicity. Because apparently... You're just a little too dark for us, so you're going to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to go back across the Mediterranean to a place you've probably never been. Mm-hmm. This sounds eerily familiar. Yeah. Where did we get the Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially for this country. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. The moving of people, guys. It's just... It's cruel. Don't move people around forcefully. They all die. Which was yeah. the point, but... I've definitely heard, growing up in the South, go back to where you came from. And my favorite response to that was a kid in my high school who went, I'm from Indiana, you fuck. <laughs> I love people. Yeah. Yeah. You can you can guess the ethnicity on that one? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I, go back to where you came from. Like, they decided to just... Show up here. Yeah, like, ooh, this is the land of opportunity. No. 
no, that's not how it went. Not for a lot of them. Like, I mean, yes, some people did immigrate because better opportunity, but that was much later. Yeah. If your family has been here since before, oh, I don't know, 1880, you probably didn't choose to come here. I don't know why my family, if they chose or if it was out of necessity, but they were here before 1880. Uh, Some of mine moved over during the Irish Holocaust. Ooh, fun. I was just listening to that story. Yeah. I don't know. Shout out to Behind the Bastards. It was a good episode on how the Catholic Church killed all the Irish babies. Yeah. It's literally the title of the episode. Go listen. It's <laughs> so interesting. Robert Evans is also not a sponsor. We're just really big fans. Hi, Robert. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> you don't know me, but you will. <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. Um so, right, so the sort of love-hate relationship with tomatoes in Spain is really a story of it starting out as just an elite food, uh, gardening, something that's pretty, you don't really eat it, and then over time, especially as other foods from the New World are more exciting, like chocolate, uh, the tomato falls out of this favor and then kind of ends up in the culinary milieu of Spain in a smaller sort of way, and is really for lower classes, and common, common people end up eating them. Um, Here pours, have my cast off. Yeah, yeah. That sounds eerily familiar. Uh, but did the elite take it back several generations after making it a commoner food and price people out of it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. We see that all the time in the, in the American South. It's... Yeah, like, we've talked about it before, that poverty food has become, like, five-star restaurant food. Yeah, I can get upscale red beans and rice. That's wild. I found a red beans and rice at a Cajun place here that's already, like, weirdly expensive for Cajun food because it's all poor food. And it's, like, $15 for a bowl of red beans and rice. (laughs) Guys, I worked in a Cajun restaurant, mind you, in North Carolina... But a bowl of red beans and rice was like eight dollars. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think that was the one with like extra rice and like a side with it as well. Yeah, I love. I saw on a menu one time at like I don't like five star dine at all ever really. So this was probably more like a you know in the like that not fine dining, but definitely not your Applebee's space. And it was, meatloaf was on the on the menu. I love the face that you're making right now. Meatloaf was on the menu at a three-star restaurant. And I was so fucking confused. It's meat. Meatloaf is absolutely poor people food. It was on the... Uh-huh. As, like, elevated meatloaf. It probably wasn't even as good as my dad's meatloaf. No, 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 no. It was it was far too hoity-toity. It had, it had a shit ton of rosemary in it. We've talked about how I hate rosemary. <laughs> uh, especially when you just put it in meat. But I digress. Yeah, it was, so it was wild. It I think it even had like a giant fucking sprig of rosemary. Like, as the garnish. And it was just like... It was a, it was a beef meatloaf? Yeah. Because that would make... Oh, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. That would make sense if you wanted to like upscale it to like lamb or pork. Don't do that. Don't do that. But yeah. if you're going to, that's how you do that. Yeah. 
And then even then, you don't do all that. Like, if you're going to upscale meatloaf, you do part beef and then introduce a mix of that with lamb or pork or bison or whatever. The, or whatever you're going to add. Gonna put into it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it, it seemed... Fucking dumb. Yeah, it seemed really dumb. Yeah. Moving on to the place where tomatoes are probably most notably associated, Italy. Yay. So, again, the story of the tomato um, that I'm going to start with, again, comes from William Alexander's um, 10 Tomatoes That Changed the World. It's his first chapter. Um, And he talks about when tomatoes entered into Italy. So the earliest record of of tomatoes entering into Italy is through Pisa. And it's here that a basket of New World food made its way into none other than the kitchen of Cosimo de Medici. Yeah. On All Hallows' Eve, 1548. (laughs) Oh. Fucking perfect. Happy Halloween. Here's this soft gourd-looking thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to change your world. Yes. So if you haven't heard of the Medicis, I'll give you a very quick and generalized synopsis. So the House of Medici was an Italian banking family um, and really a political dynasty. They consolidated their power first in the Republic of Florence and Cosimo de Medici was the one to sort of begin this dynasty. So this is the, you know, father of this legacy. Um, and this is during the first half of the 15th century. So the family founded the Medici Bank. Uh, this bank was the largest in Europe during the 15th century until uh, it fell later on. And it facilitated the Medici's rise to political power in Florence. So yeah, with you control money, the money. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Medici's wealth and influence uh, was initially derived from the textile trade. And that's how they sort of gained enough money to start this bank. Mm-hmm. The Medici's dominated the government, the city's government. They were be able to bring Florence under their family's power and create an environment in which art and humanism flourished. Uh, so humanism being the idea that instead of ethics and morality being God sent or otherworldly or something that's ingrained to or given to us from outside... Um, that those, the question of what is the nature of man and how does morality and ethics sort of live within man mm-hmm. is this concept of humanism. So, of course, the emphasis becomes more on humans than divine in the sense of what is the nature of us yeah. and how do we operate in this space. Uh, so the focus changes a little bit from just being like, because the Bible said to really trying to figure out like, well, what's in us? That makes us do or do not or think or whatever. Them and other families were the ones who inspired the Italian Renaissance. So like Uh big name people here. And we'll talk a little bit about how the Renaissance is amazing, but also really, really bad for tomatoes. The Medici produced, okay, this is a legacy. Not only are they amazing and rich and whatever, they produced four popes. Pope Leo X from 1513 to 1521. Pope Clement VII from 1523 to 34. Pope Pius IV, which probably means he wasn't pious at all. That fucking guy. Yeah. 1559 to 1565. And Pope Leo XI, if I'm, if I'm, yes, 11, sorry, Roman numerals, y'all. 
1605. They also produced two queens of France, Catherine de' Medici and Maria, uh, Marie de' Medici. So again, they're all over the place. They're they the it family. They are the it family. They're the keeping up with the Medicis. Okay, but they're more useful than a Kardashian, right? Oh, well, I meant keeping up with the Joneses. Now the keeping up with the Kardashians makes so much fucking sense. I never put those two together because... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome. Also, no shade to the Kardashians. I just don't know what you do for society at all. Entertain. Nish. Entertainish. Okay, that's fair. Beautify? I I mean, they have makeup brands. They They do set beauty standards in a lot of weird ways. And they have lots of shapewear. Great. Some of which is incredible. I mean, don't get me wrong. I use shapewear. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a thick girl, but I don't use Kim's or Skims. Skims, whatever. Not. Skims. Yeah. 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 I don't like the name. Nope. Um, and she has, she has a really controversial waist shaper for pregnant women. No. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at. I'm like, if, if that's, if that's where if we can't just embrace the body of a pregnant woman, meh. Yeah. I'm out. Um, I don't care. I will say good on her for leaving her relationship when it got abusive. Like she, she saw the signs and she got the fuck out. So like, I'll give her that one. Nobody is wholly good or wholly bad. No, no one, even the, the worst people in the world are still, there's still good in them to some extent. Hitler liked dogs. Like, yeah. Loved his pet dog. And he liked to paint. He was real shitty at it. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine how the world would be different if he actually went to art school? Or if someone just said that it was good and and bought his paintings? Even just one. Just one. And then the whole the gas thing. Maybe maybe he could have done without being gassed in World War One. Yeah, that could have... I think he would have learned that lesson, but... <laughs> nope. No, he just took inspiration. He surely did. Um, Sorry, I got a soft topic again. No, it's fine, it's fine. Um, so the Medici family also claimed to have funded the invention of the piano and the opera, although there's really no sources that show that, um, but they definitely financed the construction of St. B- Peter's Basilica and Santa Maria dei Fiore, um, and were patrons of Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, not... The Turtles, the artists, <laughs> just for our younger crowd, uh, Machiavelli, Galileo, and Francisco Reddy, just to name a few. So they were just throwing money at artists left and right. Cosimo had a Spanish wife whose name was, because we're always going to mention, it's not just his wife, because she had a fucking name. Yeah. So Eleonora de Toledo, but she was she was from Spain, and so that's how he has this access to new world Spanish goods, right? She basically, like... His wife is the reason we have tomatoes. Yeah, like, she basically writes to her uncle or whoever and is like, hey, yo, I heard that you guys got some stuff. Like, can you send it our way? We'd love to try it. Um, And they have enough fucking money for it anyway. So, yes. Wait, Um, so you're telling me women's soft social connections are the reason that the world works? What? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, so the tomato enters the house, and that's evident from a note that the steward sent back, saying that the produce arrived safely, and he gives the name for these strange foods for the first time, and it's Pomodoro. 
And then boom, pasta sauce, right? Bada bing, bada boom, pasta. No. Um, So tomatoes would not become a staple in Italian cooking for another, wait for it, 300 years. (sighs) Yeah. So... In the book that I was reading, I told you a little bit about this, but I, the readers, ha- or readers, the listeners have to read this book because the description of this is amazing. So William Alexander goes to Pisa because he's writing a book on tomatoes, so he fucking can. And he gets to the building that was formerly Cosimo's house. And now it's a bureaucratic building. So he's writing about how he's so disappointed that he's walking into this house of Cosimo. And it looks like, like... An office building. Yeah, it looks like Staples. (laughs) Like, it's metal desks and filing cabinets and just people droning away at their job. And so there is a woman there who is showing him around and is kind of confused why he is even interested in this building because it's not like the Cosimo house that's in Florence, which is Mm -hmm. the big, beautiful one. But she tells him that there's a an area of the building that hasn't been uh, remodeled, and he's welcome to come take a look at it. At it, so of course he wants to see any part of the house that is still original. And she walks him through, or like across the courtyard and into this room, and he says that he's standing in Cosimo's kitchen. Nothing had been touched other than some upgrades. So indoor plumbing and some of the upgrades to the appliances, but the rest of the room is the original. So it's these really long tables, uh, the floor to ceiling, blue and white, uh-huh. um, Italian tiles or Spanish tiles, sorry, uh, that he makes note that he's really jealous because he realizes that in a really dirty cooking situation, you can just mop floor to ceiling. And now I want to figure out how to make that look really nice in a kitchen one day because... That sounds perfect. Just Swiffer the shit out of everything. And then she opens up this door and says, if you look out, you'll see that this leads to the main road and to the river that's right across the street. And the river is where all of the royal packages would have come to. That's amazing. And that's when he realizes that he's standing in the place at the door where this basket, the very first time tomatoes ever entered Italy, happened. He's standing in the tomato basket. <laughs> I would just... Uh... So, again, we are going to go to a very beautiful place to look at the most ridiculous thing. It's going to be the UK for a garlic festival, and then we're going to hop over to Pisa to look at this Kitchen. fucking bureaucratic office and not give two shits about the Leaning Tower and... Look at the tomato on the cathedral and peace out. <laughs> Guys, uh, I don't care about a tower that was poorly constructed. No. I do absolutely care about the origins of the tomato. Well, and I don't know if it was poorly constructed. They just built it on a marsh. That's poor construction. Because yeah. part of construction is figuring out that your foundation is actually going to fucking work. They should have because pizza means marsh. You know, they probably didn't actually listen to anybody that told them that. No, no, no. Also, it's really funny that they're Christians and they didn't build their things on a rock. But they didn't, they didn't put it on sinking sand either, so. No, but like, you you know that, you know the story, you know the song, the the church song of building your house on a rock. Anywho. Which one? There are so many. (laughs) Right. 
So again, there's very few sources before the 18th century for tomatoes in Italy as sort of a regular food stuffs. However, the doors on the Pisa Cathedral, which is the cathedral, the church that's attached to the Leaning Tower, or rather the Leaning Tower is attached to the church. There's these beautiful brass doors. There's three of them. Um, those were commissioned in 1609. And among the images of biblical depictions around the, at the border of this is uh, local flora and fauna. And there is absolutely a tomato in that depiction. Um, so we at least know that it was considered local flora and fauna in 1609. Whether or not it was being eaten is another story. The dark age of the tomato in Europe coincides with the Renaissance. I told you I'd tell you how the Renaissance was not good for the tomato. So even with this new period of philosophical and artistic efflorescence, the emphasis was on the classics, specifically classical Greece. And in a vast simplification of the Renaissance, this was a time when Greek classics found their way back into Europe, into the European milieu. Yes, back into. It was lost for a time to Europe following the rise of Christianity in Rome and the, quote, Dark Ages. However, it was only Europe that was dark at this time. The Islamic world was on fire with knowledge and intellect, science, medicine, art, and philosophy. And it is here that the classical Greek text survived. In fact, we owe nearly all of our knowledge of Socrates, Plato, Virgil, Homer, Pythagoras, countless others, to the libraries and scholars of medieval Golden Age Islam. I was about to ask if this was the Golden Age of Islam. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have these libraries, most notably the Library of Baghdad, but there's a number of these, uh, where people are scholars, which means that there are a number of things. So they're religious, but they're philosophical, and they're also scientists. And so like all of like, science and medicine and art kind of converge together in these places as a knowledge hub. Yeah, that's where we found the earliest batteries. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so the sources uh, from the classical world make their way into the region, and then, of course, these scholars take time to translate them. And so we have the Greek and Latin sources get translated into Arabic and then retranslated back into the Greek and Latin and then translated into Italian, French, and Spanish and others as they make their way more widely available in Europe. And scholars could really emphasize that better. At, at the very least, professors and teachers can emphasize that because one, we would not have these sources at all. We would know no things, zero things of Socrates at all. We would not have the Iliad. We would not have the Odyssey at all if it was not for the Islamic world. But also this issue of translation where we have to account for the fact that the way in which we have these classical texts was filtered through the Arabic world. Yes. And that's important. And not to say that it's degraded or it's changed something or whatever, but just the fact that that's a stop along the way. So is part of the conversation for people who are reading the quote original texts in the original language um, and trying to figure out how to translate those things. Some of those decisions are made because of that filter through Islam. Through and you Arabic. need to think about that with, pretty much every text that wanders through the Arabic world. Well, and because we think about Europe as having the original text, like, oh, I'm reading this in the original Latin. Well, you're not, because it got filtered through a 
uh, world and we owe it to them. And I think it just adds into like European superiority to be like, oh, we have the classics. And you're like, well, no. you wouldn't <laughs> if it wasn't for a community that you have vilified Sh- sure, for you have forever. You have the classics asterisk. Yeah. And you have, or you have the classics because of. Yeah. And you should just pay respect to that for like a second. Yeah. As opposed to being like, we're amazing and have these things, but. We're the, we're the, the cradle of the enlightenment. And then the Arabic region looks over and goes, we're the cradle of civilization, but okay. Yeah. 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 The things that were happening in the Islamic golden age are fascinating. So fascinating. Like they were the first to be able to perform. And I don't know, this is not really great or not, but um, they were the first to be able to perform successful castration surgeries that didn't actually lead to sepsis. Uh, And again, I don't know if castration is a yay or nay in your community. We're okay with some penile uh, reduction surgery. Reduction (laughs) surgery as as a Jew, but um, <laughs> castration is a bit far, even for, for a moil. Um, Unless but, they're really drunk. Yeah, but, and the castration that would have happened in this time period is not just the testicles. No, it's the whole That's all. Middle. Yeah, it's all of it. And so the idea that they're able to do that successfully and still have a way to expel waste and all the things is, is fascinating. Because that's a that's during the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages. Yeah. Um, All of Europe and was dark. And, huh? All of Europe was dark. All of their neighbors had the lights on and were going, what are you doing? And they're like, it's so dark. Well, and it's even a misnomer because it wasn't even dark. It just wasn't Christian. <laughs> because communities in, like, Viking communities and, like, Northern European communities were thriving. Yeah. They just weren't Christian. And so the church is like, oh, it's so dark because Jesus is not here for you. And you're like, nah, fuck off, bro. Like, we're doing just fine. So really it was them looking around at all the lights their neighbors had on going, oh, my God, it's so dark here. And the neighbors are like, what are you talking about? Yeah. You have so many lights on. Yeah. They're like, no, it's because you keep putting your lamp under the bushel. Yeah. <laughs> Please tell me that people know this biblical reference. I'm such a nerd. But yeah, if you keep putting your lamp under a bush, it's going to be dark, y'all. <laughs> no. But Jesus is the light. It's so confusing. Anywho. Um, making fun of old school Christianity. Don't get don't get crazy. Okay. Well, make fun of it if the evangelicals hadn't taken over in their second revival. This but is, it's fine. This is true. Anyway, so... Sorry, historian rant there. But the Renaissance (laughs) saw a rebirth, literally, of classical medicinal practices. And this is what really takes a toll on the tomato. So classical medicinal practices, specifically the notions of humoristic medicine, which we discussed in the last episode, the four humors, right, and balancing those. So Galen, um, in the second century, a second century philosopher expanding on Hippocrates' theories of the humors began to include the hot, cold, dry, wet scale to the, uh, through, to the understanding of humors. Again, we talked a little bit about this in the last episode. And so tomatoes fail on the scale as the coldest, wettest food, and in turn became something that many people thought were unhealthy because cold and wet is the wrong thing to be. Do you remember what we said cold and wet was? 
feminine. Yeah, 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 yeah. You want to be dry and hot. Like all of those saucy Spaniards and Italians. Yeah, like garlic. Like garlic. But you don't want to be wet and cold. Is like there a, a, is there like a, is it like a, uh, so is there hot and wet and cold and dry? Yes. I Excellent. Have, I have it. I have a diagram for you. Oh my God. So I have, I have the, the, the scale for you. Oh my God. So hot and dry is like Thanksgiving turkey. I can see it. Especially dry. Yeah. And cold and wet, again, is the tomato. Mm -hmm. So now hot and wet are like lemon, lime, and red wine. And cold and dry is like Parmesan cheese. Why does that make sense? (laughs) Why does that should not make Uh sense? Uh And yet, here it is, making fucking sense. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Stop it! I don't know if it means anything, but it is... It does make sense. Like, you could see how they came up with it. Now, its connection to health, I think, is Who the fuck cares? The off, fact that they but... they were just like, turkey's really dry, and it's better when you serve it hot. It's hot and dry food. Yeah. Parmesan cheese is hard, and you kind of got to keep it cold, because the way that you make parm traditionally is you put it in a fucking cave, and you let it do its thing in a cave. Which well, is cold. And then now I'm thinking of, like, when you when you are creating a dish, like, we have essentially roasted chicken. Yep. Which is hot and dry, that we have now put in a hot, wet soup. Yeah. So complimentary, but also, like, the hot part. You don't want hot and cold together. Yeah. But... For balance. Dry and hot for a balance. Interesting. Cold and wet. Right, it's, yeah. a, it's a it's a lady food. Um, <laughs> although the Greeks didn't have their hands on it, neither did the Romans, so there are really no sexual depictions of the tomato. Can you imagine how horny they would have been for tomatoes? <laughs> they thought onions were sexy. I mean, there's a like, nipple tomato and the snake tomato. Boom, male female. Yeah, they would have been like boob tomato. Yeah, they're like breasticle tomato yes. and testicle tomato. <laughs> Yes, yes. I love it. So along with this new, or not new, but this revival of humoristic medicine, right, and cold, wet foods not being considered the healthiest, that falls out of favor. But it also doesn't help that it was related to nightshade, specifically the Italian connection to Belladonna. Having that similarity there was not helpful for the tomato. Also, yeah, yeah, I can see that. They wouldn't have necessarily stayed away from it. It just was not something that was looked at as super duper healthy because they knew that belladonna was not healthy, but it didn't stop them from putting it in their eyes. Yeah, because it made your, like, pupils get bigger and... Unrealistically dilated, yeah. And then you just looked really pretty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But, you know, being blind also makes you really pretty because you can't see if you're (laughs) ugly. Everyone's beautiful to the blind. No, they're not. No, because then we learn their personality, and then there's a lot of ugly people. But anywho. Um, also, tomatoes would not end up on pasta until the 1850s. So we are far before spaghetti and meatballs. Aww. One exception to the restriction of tomato eating was, wait for it, surprise, surprise, it's always the exception, the Jew. <laughs> Um, First, you're the garlic eaters. Now you're the tomato people. Yeah, yeah. They they Ah. were all about tomatoes and garlic. Um, The Spartac Jews 
were particularly, they incorporated tomato into trade for sure. So Jewish mer merchants were trading tomatoes. Um, there's recipes for tomato from uh, Sephardic Jews and Jewish communities. Um, tomatoes and a fried cod stew has survived. So that sounds fucking delicious. Yummy. But not just Jewish communities, also Arabic communities were also an exception at the time, probably taking the tomato with them into southern uh, Italy after the con uh, Reconquista, which is the retaking of Spain by the Catholic Church. Because Spain, by the way, guys, Spain was Islamic for a long time. Yeah. Like, like Umayyad caliphates lived in Spain. Yeah. They took Not... over the city of Almanzor and then, was it Almanzor? It might have been Andalusia. I'm probably mixing those up. Sorry, guys. But yeah, everyone thinks of Italy or as Spain as being, you know, a, a site of Christendom, and it is to some extent. But before that, it was a a, a site of Muslim done. Yeah, Muslim done. I like it. Also, as a weird side note, the tomato for a moment was called a love apple. As probably <laughs> of, it's a very long story of language and mistranslation from the Pomodoro moment, and I'm not going to get into all of it. But it's also weirdly very opposite from the cold aspects. Cold was thought to dampen the fire of desire. And there's no evidence that Europeans ever saw the tomato as an aphrodisiac. Uh, but this term was used for a while within uh, British and, and German communities and, and areas. It's because no matter where you go, somebody is going to be horny over some sort of fruit or vegetable. Yeah, and we can't figure out, we scholars... Can't figure out if the reason why this becomes a colloquialism is because of the mistranslation from Pomodoro to whatever else it was, because, again, didn't write it down because it's a very long story, or if it is something that induces love, or because it is red and kind of heart-shaped, if you really try, or if it's just something that's so beautiful it should be looked at with love. All of these are reasons that it could have been called the love apple. I could kind of see it looking like a heart if you have vision like mine. I mean, I'm going with, it's just a language fuck up. Someone said Pomodoro, and then they heard it as two words that came out as pom, adore, like adore. Yeah. And it became the love apple. And again, I'm butchering the word because it's off the top of my head. That's just, I feel like the easiest explanation is usually the one. The calling it a love apple, and of course... Pomodoro, uh, later gets pushed out for tomate, again from the Nahuatl, so, which is really interesting that the indigenous term for it is what ends up being the main term, which I, is, mean, I, I love that. I still prefer tomato, and I'm probably going to end up calling them tomatoes for yeah. forever. Yeah. Anyways, I'm just thinking of the like, Chipotle Aristotle thing that I told you about, <laughs> where you should reverse the pronunciation, so it's Chipotle and Aristotle. I love it. To model. To model, yeah. Now, tomatoes were starting to become more popular, and they started appearing in cookbooks. So the oldest recipe that we have, including tomatoes, is from Naples in 1692 to 94. So it's a couple of volumes, um, but that's when the published, the writing of it was, was 92 to 94. Um, and it's one of the dishes that we made today. It's the side dish, I guess, um, and it's called tomato sauce in the Spanish style. This, of course, is a misnomer because it is really Mexican salsa. The combination of tomato with pepper, uh, sorry, peppers, so jalapeno mm -hmm. pepper in our case, onion, 
what was it? Oil, salt, and pepper. Mm-hmm. Um, this is was very indicative of the way in which it would have been eaten in the New World, so in Mexico. Yeah. Uh, and when the Spanish brought it back to Spain, like everything else in South America, they just labeled it Spanish, including the food that they brought back. So it well, was yeah. the Spanish tomato or the Spanish sauce. They own it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, well, this is mine, and this yeah. is mine. Which is also really... There's a beautifulness to this, not to the naming, but to the fact that this tomato sauce in the Spanish style, which is really in the Nahuatl style, right, or in the Aztec style or Mesoamerican style, we tried it. It's It's good. It's salsa, right? Tomato, onion, pepper, salt and pepper. It spiced me out a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, it did spice us out a little bit because apparently we are weaker than we thought we were. Um, I, I just think that jalapeno is really, really spicy. I didn't seed it, so. Oh, that's why. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we roasted it. And we so. roasted it, yeah. But there's there's this beauty to, it, like, Mexican cooking that I've seen, at least mm-hmm. in my research of Mexican cooking, where, yes, it has been Europeanized to some extent, specifically in the use of, like, certain meats. Mm-hmm. What, no more human flesh? No more human flesh. Uh, <laughs> but there seems to be a continuity between the pre-colonial recipes and what we can find today in Mexico, which is really great and also gives credence to oral histories and handing things down and cooking as generational cooking. But eventually tomatoes stopped being cooked alongside chilies and peppers, and thus the tomato sauce that we think of today was born by dropping the chilies uh, it could be easier blended with European ingredients, so that's how we get and it. And now we get to spaghetti and meatballs! Uh, in like 200 years. Fuck! <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Uh, <laughs> many of the recipes for tomatoes uh, were born within religious orders. Surprise! Uh, we <laughs> talked a little bit earlier about the gardener priest. So again, you have these, um, these massive gardens and monasteries, but monastery cooks... Uh, they cooked with tomatoes often throughout Europe. Tomato, f- uh, tomato, <laughs> tomato frittato. <laughs> Not to be confused with tomato, tomato. <laughs> the tomato frittatas were eaten uh, as part of meatless Fridays, and the discovery of sun drying um, allowed for year-round tomato consumption. Podcast listeners, it looks like sundering. <laughs> it is a sundering. Our- in our notes, so I was like, what the fuck is sundering? And then she said that, and I'm like, oh! No, I, I wrote this really quickly, and I didn't change any of the typos, so that's why the whole thing is basically underlined in blue. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, yeah, I was like, I'm just going to write some stuff, and then I'll say it, and it'll make some sense. It's great, because it's like, there's a surprise around every corner. There is, there absolutely is. Were they sundering? No, they were sundrying. <laughs> Perfect. Other regions in Europe came to the tomatoes slowly as well. Um, there are a number of late 18th and 19th century recipes from uh, from France that include tomatoes, uh, most notably tomato sauce again. But it wasn't until the mid-19th century that Britain would have a go with tomatoes. And the increased appreciation of the use of tomatoes is attributed, attributed to the inclusion of tomatoes in the Encyclopedia Britannica. So once... It has been officially recognized, then it's good to eat. Because white people. (laughs) I was going to say, the first and last time the Encyclopedia Britannica had such an effect on people's cooking. 
But it's probably not. No. That's really sad. Well, this is going to be the nerdiest sentence that I ever say on the podcast. Encyclopedia-ism is a fascinating study. (laughs) (laughs) Now, an encyclopedia is the idea that you house all of the world's knowledge. So, when we're talking about the golden age of Islam, encyclopedism becomes a thing. Like, it's it's an actual way of studying by categorizing and having these, like, you know, lists of things and small descriptions of them. And in a space where you have massive knowledge hubs, the idea of an encyclopedia is synonymous to the idea that your knowledge hub houses all the knowledge in the world. Now, we're going to look at the word Encyclopedia Britannica, which implies that Britain is the home of all the knowledge in the world. It is putting the British stamp of approval on something as being historically factual. Have I ever told you my very favorite, like, sports ball story? This is sports ball. No, you haven't, because I, so, I would remember, I'm sure. So I'm pretty sure it was, like, Ireland and Scotland were playing a football match. And the chant that got started up in the crowd was... We hate England more than you. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it's just as good as, I think it was Ireland who was chanting, like, fuck your, not inauguration, what is, uh, coronation? It was like, yeah. fuck your coronation when you Charles mean- was being, because there was a game that day, and they were like, yeah, fuck it. No, I don't care. And they were playing against England or Britain, whatever. I don't watch. Better. I don't watch sports ball. Is that better or worse than the chant that got started up of Lizzie's in a box after Elizabeth died? <laughs> wow! <laughs> She's in a box. She's in a box. Lizzie's in a box. I At love a sports it. ball game. I. There you go. I'm just saying. This is the same country that went around and stole all the spices and conquered half the world for them and decided they didn't like them. Yeah. <sighs> Not to mention slavery. Yes. And what they did in India, which has to do with spices, but so much more than spices. Not to mention, it wasn't about spices in China at all. It's about opium. I was going to say, it was about drugs. Yeah. The second greatest reason for people to fight. Yeah. And colonize. Cool. So, we'll come back to that. Yes. Sorry. Another day, but that's fine. So, um, again, Encyclopedia Britannica, the study of encyclopedism is fascinating, yada yada, I'm a giant nerd. It's like right up there, it's like etymology for language and encyclopedism. Those are like the spaces so that I could just like tunnel and rabbit hole and deep dive. Forever. Forever. And they're just like, where does this word come from? And how does it change over time? All the things. And now you know what our podcast is really about, podcast yeah, listeners. We tricked you. Nerds, and we needed to get it out of our system because our husbands are not the same kind of nerd. Yeah, mine's a space math nerd. I, I don't I don't even know how to describe Topher. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not a history nerd, and he's not a language nerd. He's not 
the same kind of nerd as you. No, he's not the same kind of nerd. Clearly, it's some level of compatible, though. I think it's the sarcasm. Our sarcasm, our dark humor is compatible. Yeah. I mean, we make dead dad jokes. Dead dad lasagna. Yeah, because his, his, my, my father-in-law has since deceased a very long time ago. Um, so yeah, so, so my husband's just in the dead dad club. He, okay, so it's, it's a Grey's Anatomy reference to be in the dead dad club, right? Um, I just love that it's a reference to like a quote girly show. Yeah, yeah. So George's dad dies. It's not a spoiler. Um, and Christina tells him that she's sorry that he's now in the dead dad club. Like it's a shitty club to be in, right? Cause her dad also died. And so when my cousin's dad died, she looked at Topher and goes, I guess we're in the same club together now. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, they're just, they're in the dead dad club. I'm in the dead beat dad club. Very different sort of club. I mean, if your dad keeps acting the way he is, he's going to be putting you in the dead dad club yeah. sooner than later. I don't know if this is going to get edited out or not. Probably not. Uh, I mean, I came for my mom, so I don't know. With mayonnaise tacos, we can come for my dad for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Also, what the podcast is about, parent issues and generational trauma. Uh, (laughs) Tomatoes. Um, So the tomato comes back to the Americas, specifically North America, but again is looked at with suspicion. So colonizers would not eat the food in America until it was, quote, endorsed by Europe. Um, and again, it wasn't endorsed by Europe until the mid-19th century with that encyclopedia business. And so colonizers, their reluctance to eat New World foods led to their mass starvation. And there's a quote in the book that I was reading that said, the colonizers showed up to the land of abundance and starved. Because they're stubborn. That's some colonizer shit, yeah. And because they didn't listen to the peoples who were already here and the Thanksgiving feast didn't go the way that the third grade play goes, and they didn't what? just learn that tomatoes are so uh, great to eat with turkey. They didn't eat turkey on Thanksgiving either. Anyhow, you but mean, yeah, just you mean third grade lied to me? I mean, all of public school system lied to you. Yeah, I knew that because but, like... in 1492, Columbus did sail the ocean blue. Yeah, but that's such a simplification. It's also wrong. And I heard this was added to it from Behind the Bastards, that in 1493, the church defined atrocity. It's beautiful. Robert Evans, you beautiful bastard. It was actually one of his guests. Robert Evans' guest. You're also (laughs) a beautiful bastard. I was like, that's the, I'm, it's going, I, like, it needs to go on something. It can't go on a shirt because it's not mine. It just, it can't go on a shirt that I sell. It can go on a shirt that I wear. Yeah, no, no. We can, we can make those we can, shirts we for can, us. Oh, it's a coffee mug. It's oh, a, it's, it's one of the ones that's the heat. So like, <laughs> it says in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and it has and like the cartoon. fill up the coffee. Yeah, and it's it has like the cartoon little like, oh, God. Uh, Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria. Yeah. And then you fill it up and then it just is like flames at the bottom. Of a cross. Yes. I love this. Burning Uh, cross on the very bottom. Oh my god. Guys, it's happening, and I might have to reach out to see if we can just steal it for merch, because you're all going to want this, but that's Hanukkah (laughs) presents. I have so many Hanukkah presents in mind for you, it's not even funny, but anyhow. Oh my god. You're so easy to shop for, because you're me, (laughs) (laughs) 
and I shop for me really well. <laughs> and uh, now you have a uh, uh, nibbling to spoil. Yeah, this is true. Yes. So um, over time, of course, they would take to New World Foods and stop starving. Now there's we overeat. Also, and then and then there's also the famous story, right? The the famous story of Robert Gibbon Johnson in 1820 publicly eating tomatoes in Salem, Massachusetts to awe the crowd of his ability to eat the famous poisonous plant or possibly to sell tomatoes. Not really sure, but there's a couple of different stories. But, the, you know, he comes into the center of town and he's got these tomatoes with him and he's like, watch me eat the most poisonous bullshit in the world. And he bites into a tomato and he's like, ha ha ha, I survived. And then he sells them and turns a profit. That's all a lie. Sounds about right. Yeah, all of it is a myth. I was going to say, that sounds like an early advertiser bullshit. Yeah. Like viral marketing. Yeah, completely apocryphal altogether. Did not happen. Um, And this is partly debunked by the earliest American painting that includes tomato, which is called Still Life with Vegetables and Fruit, painted by Raphael Pele. Peel? 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 Peel. Um, In 1795. So, right, 1795 is the painting... 1820 is where the story comes from. Um, But the picture depicts an array of edible fruits and vegetables. So the inclusion of tomato as an edible plant is pretty indicative in this painting. Now, really interesting American tomato history. Tomatoes had a row with the U.S. Congress. Here we go. This is how they're legally fruit. Okay, let's go. In 1883, there was a new tariff on imported vegetables. And there was a high rate of trade of tomatoes from the West Indies. And they didn't want to pay the tariff on tomatoes. Thus, the age-old question of is it a fruit or a vegetable went all the way to the Supreme Court. Are you fucking... Where the Supreme Court ruled that the tomato is legally a fruit. They didn't have better shit to do in 1883. They didn't want to pay taxes. We're not surprised. 1776, they didn't want to pay taxes, and they fucking revolutionized away from the crown because someone put a one-cent tax. I'll double-check that later. But a very minuscule tax on stamp. Well, I mean, okay. There was the Stamp Act, the Paper Act, the Tea Acts. They were all listed together as the Intolerable Acts. So it was like one cent per each of those. But in not to not to give too much credence to this whole writing over taxation without representation, which is literally happening to us now. Anyways. Yeah. But due to like how much things normally cost, that was probably about a fifth of the overall price. Of these things. Yeah, it's like 20% of what they would have already been paying. Yeah, and as an American, weird to say, taxation with representation is a fundamental ideology that I also think is a pretty good thing. Although we're not represented by any means because we're women. And you're a Jew. Yeah, and if I were an actual woman of color, because Jews are kind of an off-shade white, not really, <laughs> I don't know, they're a person of color, but not a person of color. Uh, You're absolutely, beige. absolutely, yeah, right. I'm just cream colored. Um, <laughs> is absolutely not represented by no. our government by any means. Uh, so yeah, so I don't know, ladies, taxation without representation. Let's let's bring that back, and they can go fuck off with their "Don't Tread on Me" flags. I like this plan. 
Can we make the don't tread on me flags with the uterus on it? There are those. I know, but can we make them the whole no taxation without representation? Yeah. For women? I love it. No pink tax, god damn it. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's a thing. I also flipped off a bunch of Planned Parenthood protesters in downtown last week. um, With my children in the car. (laughs) Did not care. Did not care. Rolled down the window. Maybe not. I don't know. Put the hand right up to the window and flipped them all off. It was just signs that was like, they kill babies here. And I'm like, they also save lives. Yeah. Lots Cervical of them. cancer screenings. Breast mean cancer screenings. All sorts of things. Yeah. STDs. All this stuff. Um, and they also prevent a shit ton of babies being born so they don't have to kill them with giving out free or very low cost contraception. Yeah. Weird Planned how that Parenthood works. is a good thing. It's a friend. And if you don't agree, you can fuck right off. I'm good with that statement. Yeah. I'll, I'll endorse that one. Oh, cool. Tomatoes. Tomatoes. Um, so, even with the clear rise of importation, in 1899, a food writer named Christine Turhune writes that the Americans have hardly touched upon its possibilities making note that tomato was used in salad, souped, and served scalloped and stewed. But other than that, really not touching on, like, the possibility of tomatoes by any means, uh, at least by an 1899 standard. I kind of want to try scalloped tomatoes now, though. Yeah, it sounds yummy. Yeah. Um, Tomatoes would increase in popularity in the 19th century, so much so that by the 20th century, tomatoes were in regular cultivation rotation in World War II victory gardens, Right alongside our friend Garlic from last episode. And, and also, his sexy sister, Onion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, like, regular culti- cultivation rotation. That just sounds fun. Cultivation rotation. Yeah, anyhow. <laughs> the preservation of tomatoes is a really important development in the history of tomato. Um, this is due to, again, that quickness that the tomato can rot. Uh, so canning becomes really popular in the 19th and 20th century. Um, in fact, there's a World War One poster calling Americans to can their goods as a way to fight the Kaiser. The Kaiser is actually featured on this poster in a can. So That's amazing. you can do your part, America, by preserving your food. Waste none. Um, Waste not, what not. That's the American way. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then we're going to get to just a little bit on ketchup. Um, so back in England in the early 18th century, people are creating a proto-ketchup. Um, it was made popular by condiment traders, because that's a thing. Um, I, I think I was job. that in a past life. But anyways, condiment traders who developed a taste for Southeast Asian food. So in an attempt to recreate Southeast Asian condiments, the English experimented with um, ingredients that they had access to, because they didn't always have access to things like soy, anchovy, oysters and walnuts and so the tomato ended up being in that repertoire of ingredients to try to create these southeast asia inspired condiments i cannot wait to talk about ketchup i've already called that episode (laughs) yes yes Uh, so just touching and just giving a little bit here the proto ketchup would not take the form of something that's more closely related to what we think of Um, until it was adopted in America, where they ditched the more vinegary version. And the first recipe for something that's close to the modern style of ketchup was published in 1812 in Philadelphia. But it wouldn't be until the second half of the 19th century that a guy by the name of Henry J. 
Heinz, <laughs> would found his pickle and horseradish preserving company and create ketchup as we know it today. Do you want to know one of the early slogans for ketchup from the Heinz company? 100%. Save mom the work. <laughs> because making ketchup is really labor intensive. I can't wait to make it with you. <laughs> it's going to be so fun. I, I can't it. wait. The very, very modern history of the tomato is really one of cultivation and industrialization and migrant labor. So I don't want to get into all of the ways that the tomato has been genetically modified or made to be prettier and bigger and redder and all the things. Um, but it's a really long history, and that's really where the tomato sort of sits now because it's it's the most popular and more most purchased fruit in America. Um, and so really, it's not about us trying to find new ways to use it anymore. It's really about trying to find ways to continue to grow it in the ever-changing climate that we have. Again, if you don't believe in climate change, that's another fuck-off moment. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, and so uh, trying to figure out greenhouses and different ways for irrigation systems and all the things that create industrial farming, the tomato is right there in the story of industrial farming, for sure. And then there's migrant labor. So states like California and Florida grow tomatoes and benefit from the proximity to foreign labor. In fact, the, and so the tomato industry today would be doomed if it were not for Mexican immigrant labor in California. Like it, it just, it wouldn't survive. We wouldn't have people to do it. It wouldn't survive. We really owe the, the, um, the popularity and the access of tomatoes as the most popular fruit in the United States, really to this community um, of laborers. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't come with all good, right? Yeah. Foreign immigrant labor often comes with exploitation. Surprise. Especially we're, in the agricultural region. Yeah, we're not doing much better. I mean, we're not in specifically enslaving them. So we're doing a little bit better than our forefathers, but not great. Um, and I cannot do this episode without talking about Taco Bell. My absolute favorite fast food, and maybe not for a minute. I don't know. I have to look into how this played out. But in 2001, the Coalition of M.O. Kaley Workers, I'm going to birch that name, I'm sorry, but they launched a boycott of Taco Bell, who was also owned by Pizza, who also owned Pizza Hut, KFC, and Long John Silver's. That's a lot of typos. What? Um, the protest was over, quote, sweatshops in the fields. And it was ongoing all the way until 2004, where it came to a head in a demonstration at the Taco Bell headquarters in California. Shit. Yeah. So the tomatoes that are being used at those restaurants are being purchased or cultivated on farms that, are, that have immigrant labor. And that immigrant labor is not being given proper wages, health care, sick leave, all of the things that are basic that's horrifying um yeah and so it really creates like the the new version of the sweatshop in the field which is horrific europe is not any better to uh, migrant labor so they also use immigrant labor um, and it's also often exploitive um and but their uh, migrant labor comes from morocco west africa and romania so again the tomato itself is not necessarily as problematic as say sugar when we're talking about the honey episode yeah but this is ongoing like this is a problem today that migrant workers are underrepresented 
underpaid under all everything yeah um and really should be compensated properly for their work yeah pay people for doing hard jobs yeah and um just the genetically modified stuff the tomato was the first genetically modified whole food um outside of traditional breeding so you can like breed different things together to make a sweeter or whatever bigger yeah. smaller yada yada and that had been having that's agricultural revolution stuff that's basic yeah but the actual manipulation of genes in a whole food was the first time you saw a tomato and this was in 1994 where the ripening gene was suppressed so again it would not rot right away like the pesky pesky tomato has always been uh done so yeah as a that's a lot on tomatoes, and I need to pause because it's 5 o'clock and I need to go pick up my kids. Wonderful. All cool. right. We'll be back. Okay. Yay. Here we are, back at the yucky mouth sound section of the podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> and we have, so we, Birdie did a lot of work this time because um, I was still script writing. Don't worry. I'll, I'll make up for it. When I'm, you know, boob feeding an infant yeah. and you're doing all the cooking. Absolutely. Uh, she's just like front loading those credits. Um, okay. So we made three things. The first thing we made was the tomato sauce in the Spanish style from 1600. Nope. Podcast listener. I already tried this when we were first making it and uh, I spiced myself out of it. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's a little, it's a bit spicy. I did a dump and did not DC the roasted jalapeno. Nope. Beforehand. Uh, 1692 is where the tomato sauce in the Spanish style is from. Uh, and it was in a cookbook that was, uh, in Naples. So it is fresh tomato and we use like cherry heirlooms. Yeah. Um, jalapeno, it's just a pepper. So we went with a jalapeno onion, a little bit of oil, and salt and pepper. And that was it. Yep. And it is um, delicious and hot. (laughs) Yeah. I tried it. I was like, wow, that tastes great. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Can you hear that when he does that? It's a little Um, bit of a thump. Okay. Can you stop thumping, please? Sorry. My little is here with us because that's how he's going to stay quiet. But he is trying to thump my... He is thumping your pop filter. So we have, I made, we, you, we, pozole. So again, there's not like an ancient recipe or even a pre-colonial recipe uh, for pozole. But the idea is that this is kind of the taste, the things, some of that tomato stew with peppers and corn. Like this is at least indicative of the flavors that they had available to them. Yeah. So pozole is a hominy and chicken, chicken for us stew. Basically you make a salsa, really a hot sauce. So for the traditional one, it is red tomatoes. We used Roma, guajillo, peppers, a little bit of garlic, salt. That was, that was really it for the the sauce. And onion. So those all get roasted and then blended down. And then that goes on top of, we did turkey thighs, sorry, chicken thighs (laughs) to make up for our not being able to eat human thighs. Although I guess thick thighs do save lives then. Oh yeah. Or, but, but they also don't because you have to sacrifice your 
life or anywho, it's complicated. <laughs> complicated relationship between life and thighs here. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah, so this one, again, guajillo peppers, which are dried. We have to rehydrate them, blended it up, cooked the seared the chicken, put the sauce on top of it, cooked it down. And then added chicken broth and mahogany and just kind of let it chill on the stove at a simmer for yeah. quite a while. We didn't, ne- you don't necessarily need to do that, but that's but the time we, did we had. for like four hours, five hours. We started making it at two. Yeah. Five hours. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Um, and then the tr- the modern one, which really, I don't even know if it's like a modern Really, it's green pozole. This is the pozole I make at home. Like, this is my, if we're having pozole, this is the recipe I use. So it's tomatillos, a little bit of garlic. Uh, and I know last episode I said that you need to use a lot of garlic for this one. Two cloves was fine. <laughs> we used four. For the whole thing. No, we <laughs> used four. In each? Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. It so. was like three really big ones for the red. And then like two really big ones and two medium ones. For the green. Perfect. So, um, lots of garlic. Not lots, because it's not the garlic soup. No. Soup again. Two cakes, two soups. This is interesting. We're fine. Yeah. It's fine. So, tomatillos, which are small green tomatoes with a husk on them, so you have to take the husk off. They're delicious. They are delicious. They are a little sticky when you take the husk off. Don't be deterred. That's what they're supposed to be. Um, Onion, cilantro, garlic... Jalapeno. Jalapeno. And that was it. So then that all gets, again, roasted. If we had time and patience and a stove that had flames, we yeah. could have done it, like, open over open flame. But the amount of things that we had to roast, putting them in the oven is totally fine. I think you put them in at, like, a really high heat so they get, like, a good char on them. You can put them in the broiler, too. You basically just want to get some, like good charring black yeah i did the broiler and they were in there for probably 20 minutes yeah and with these i don't peel that off so a lot of times when you are charring peppers you chart them and then you kind of you like let them steam so you just put them in a container and you cover it and they like chill out in there and then you peel all that stuff off this i let the char just live because it's going to be blended in and it's... And because it's char and it's delicious. Yeah, it makes a smoky flavor. I really I really like it. And then the accoutrement that is on top. Yeah, bud. How many do you have? One, two, three, four, five, seven. You have seven? Yeah! <laughs> okay, sorry. My son's learning how to count. And he's counting beer bottle caps. I love this. It's Topa Chico caps right now because Aaron hasn't drank 10 bottled oh. beers in the last five months. That's hilarious. Sorry, honey. Um, no, so the pasoli is supposed to have like toppings, accoutrement, if you will, to them. So the traditional one, I topped mine with some of the tomato sauce of this Spanish style. Um, just a little bit because, again, it's pretty spicy. And then I added some more onion. And then with the green one, I did onion, radish, cabbage, and then a spritz of lime in both of them. For mine on the red, I did the green the exact same way. But for mine on the red, I just had onion because tangling with the tomato sauce in the Spanish style once was good for me. <laughs> uh, also, the onion that we are using are like Mexican green onions. So they basically look like a normal green onion, but the bulb at the bottom is like the size of a golf ball. So, and they taste kind of like a green onion, but the taste is like ramped up. So it's stronger. More more muchness. Yeah, more muchness. Uh, and because the recipe is called for like wild onion, a white or like onions are kind of one of those like 
there's an old and new world version, so the red onion, I think, is much more indicative of old world. I yeah. think you're just going with the traditional Mexican green onion was kind of the safe bet for it. Yeah. Cool. So let's dig in. Oh. I have never actually had red pozole. I've had green pozole a ton, mostly because I make it, um, but that's because traditionally or or often pozole is made with pork, mm-hmm. uh, especially the red one. So I just have never had the opportunity to eat it with chicken. So are we uh, starting with red? Yeah, let's start with red. Let's do it. Liam does like our bottle cap collection, so yeah, maybe that'll cover our gross mouth noises a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, is it him or is it the cat? Just like the new, the new game. Holy crow. Mm-hmm. The that lime juice just comes right through. Yeah. And I only use like a quarter, uh, like a lime wedge quarter. It's not like it's over, like I didn't use a ton of it, but it just, it hits these ingredients and just brightens everything up. It's interesting that tomato would have initially been added to add acidity, but like in this recipe, I think it cooked for so long, it becomes like sweeter. Yeah. It brings out some of those natural sugars. It's definitely not ah! spicy, Mm-mm. even with like the three guajillo chilies in it. We could have done more. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't think that we definitely could have done more or we could have added a different type of chili. So we could have done like a dried arbol or even like fresh serrano in here. Oh, um, to sort of add, like bump up the heat content, but I think it's very good. This is what I want to eat when I'm like, I just really want soup with a little bit of acid. Yeah. And like it's filling and it's comforting. This is pregnancy soup. Yes. It's also um, head cold soup. Yeah. Like, not stomach yucky sick, but like, oh, I'm stuffy and I kind of feel a little crap. You eat this and you're going to get cleared out. Okay. I think an arbol or like even just adding some cayenne. And yeah. the seasoning mix. Yeah. Moves away from traditional, but that's what I just wouldn't... Once you start... Once we get to a point where we're, like, talking about how variations and, like, take it further and, like, push it, then, of course, we're pushing past, like, traditional things. So I was on the fence about making pozole because it is really sort of a story of a blend between Spanish and traditional like Mexican I really like a blend of them because of the pork and the chicken and things like that so I was on the fence and was like should I find something older should I find something different should I make something up just based on what I know they have but a lot of the sort of stories of Pasoli that I was looking at in a modern context is that this is kind of considered a very uh, uh, patriotic dish Uh, sort of the dish of Mexico and there's like certain holidays that you specifically make pozole. There's also a restaurant chain that is really like the basis of it is pozole, like the different variations of pozole. Also, one of the things that I think is the reason why pozole has this um, patriotic aspect to it is because you can make a red version, a green version, and a white version. There's a white version? There is a white version, which of course is the... Red, me- white, and green. Yeah, Mexican the Mexican flag. flag. What is the white version? Do you know? No clue. Didn't look it up. Oh, I'm going to look it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm like, what peppers would you use in a white version? We'll look it up and I'll add it to the show notes. Hell yeah. Um, okay, so here we go with green. Green, number two. Green. I've had the old Nickelodeon theme. I don't know if it's still the Nickelodeon theme, but I've had that in my head all day. I've been humming it all day. <laughs> Sam has got to be so fucking tired of it at this point. I honestly haven't even noticed it. 
Oh, well, that's good. She yeah, came out of the country music. I was like, I'm driving her crazy. <laughs> nope, not at all. Yeah, deceiving the jalapeno was a good call for my mm-hmm. peace of mind. The tomatillo comes through really beautifully in this. It does. And um, I think that the lime is really good, but it doesn't, it's not as strong as it is in the red one. But I think that's because we have more toppings. We have more going on. Yeah. So between onion and radish and cabbage and then the soup itself, like, I think that the the lime not gets lost, but it definitely gets blended into all of that, as opposed to just really the broth, the hominy, and the chicken. And the hominy and the chicken taste just like the broth and the red one. It's just another shade of green in the green pasole. That's why I like to do the purple cabbage in my green pasole. It doesn't taste any difference in the green, but I feel like between that and the radish having that like bright pinkish red, I feel like it just kind of brightens the dish up, as opposed to having everything be just green. Yeah, it gives you a little bit more to work with. I mean, let's be honest. I'm going to finish both of these bowls. Mm-hmm. It's so good. I already finished the red. Honestly, we could have doubled the amount of chicken thighs mm-hmm. in the OG, mm-hmm. and that would have been awesome. What do you think of these? See, that's difficult because there's also cultural aspects at play with what my brain goes towards for tomato. Mm-hmm. And for me, tomato is like red tomatoes. That's what I grew up with. I actually hated tomato as a child. I think it's a common yuck, to be honest with you. Yeah, a lot of people, like, a lot of people don't care for tomato. And it's because I'd had grocery store tomatoes, for Mm -hmm. the most part. My grandparents weren't really interested in growing tomatoes for a long time. Even though they're the perfect location to do so? Yeah, that was what was weird. Yeah. My, My granddad was much more interested in growing things like watermelons and cucumbers and squash, stuff that he knew his family enjoyed yeah. and would enjoy throughout the entire season. And tomatoes, like, none of his grandkids ate them. My mom loves tomatoes, like, just loves them. And, like, now that I'm an adult, I'm like, oh, duh. But it took me having, once again, shout out to Tara, homegrown tomatoes, like, really good. We picked them off the vine, brought them inside, washed them off, sliced them up. And put them on a sandwich. Yeah. And that was the moment that it clicked for me. And I was like, oh, these are amazing. But those were still red tomatoes. Yeah. I didn't encounter tomatillos, like, at all. Not even in a, like, passing thing until I was well into my, like, late teens, early adulthood. And that was the tomatillo sauce at Moe's. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a hot sauce, right? Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't actually seen what a tomatillo looked like. Except on the internet. Uh-huh. Until I was, like, literally growing them with Tara. Nice. I hadn't seen pasoli be made. I had eaten it before, which is odd that I didn't really pay attention to how it was made or I didn't see it. And I remember the first time that I was like, I want to make this because it's delicious, but I want to make it with chicken and blah, 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 all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew it was made with tomatillos, but for some reason in my head, I was just like, yeah, it's a thing. You go to the store, you get it, blah, blah, Yeah. And I remember going to the store and seeing... The tomatillos mm-hmm. and being like, no, that's, that's not right. Like they're supposed to be, cause like the pictures I saw and the tomatillos that I saw were already de-husked. Oh. And I was like, nah, bro, that is, those are wrong. Yeah. So I was, I was just like, I'm sorry. What is, what is all this stuff on yeah. here? Uh, but I went with it cause I was like, it says tomatillos. I guess we're going to do it. And clearly I it was, I had an inclination that you're supposed to take the husk off because I had 
seed them dehusked. So I worked it out, but uh, yeah, it's it's delicious. I know that there are. I know that there's other people that I've talked to about how they make their pozole. They don't roast the like they don't burn the vegetables first. What? You don't have to. They were like just blend it up, throw it in. It kind of cooks down in the thing. I'm a fan of the roasty, toasty char because, aspect. Yes. Because yes. Yeah. Uh, but I guess to each their own. I think as far as highlighting tomatoes, I don't think these dishes do as good of a job. At least the red one doesn't do as good of a job as highlighting tomatoes as, say, the garlic episode, where literally we were just drinking garlic soup, garlic juice, basically. Yeah. But I do think that it really shows what you can do with a tomato. And I don't know. I just felt like it was it was sort of pertinent to stick with an older sort of... Agreed dish as opposed to finding a way that tomato was used once it came to the old world uh, it just eh. it doesn't seem right to do something like that like especially when i know it's from here and it had a life here yeah uh, it has a whole tradition here yeah we just don't know it because those were more oral traditions yeah but, and it just didn't make sense to like do like a tomato like a Italian style tomato sauce. So I think that the the green pozole maybe highlights the tomatillo a little bit better uh, than the red one does with red tomatoes. But even still, I don't know. They're both delicious. Mm-hmm. It's funny because the Aztecs would have been familiar with the tomatillo first and then a red tomato. And yet the traditional one is made with the red and the modern one is made with the green. It's probably just one of those things that what was old became new, became yeah. old again, became new again. Yeah. And I feel like there's really not a huge difference in these two bowls. Like, a lot of the dishes that we've made are, especially in the first two episodes, vastly different. Mr. Birdie, okay. (laughs) He just ate a gigantic, like, spoonful of the salsa. The Spanish sauce in, or whatever it's called. Tomato sauce in the Spanish style. Yes. That's a thumbs up. That is a thumbs up. (laughs) I had... A spoonful, like a quarter of that size, and was running around my kitchen like a crazy person trying to find my drink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I love that there's not much difference from this. I feel like there's there's something special about Mexican cooking and Latin American cooking that just seems to have a continuity, like a continuity to it. That things haven't really changed all that much. Not the same way as like you know the people who I don't know settlers in the United States versus what we're eating now. Oh, yeah. Nice day. But, like, the settlers we're familiar with are white. Yeah. And they're colonizers. And as we discussed in this episode, they uh, didn't eat a lot of the food around here. And I think we'd see more continuity of food because with European dishes, we do see a lot of continuity. Uh, Well, and the United States is a melting pot. So what is to say is American cuisine until, like, we actually get, like, full-on American cuisine. Everything is just a sort of smorgasbord of... High fructose corn syrup. Yeah. And <laughs> lots of sodium. So like, if it tastes that. like shit in America, it's like, cool, sugar, salt, done. And that's it. That's all we eat. A friend of mine is currently on contract in Italy, and one of the things that he noted when he first moved there, one of the things he noted is he's like, the food here, the quality of the food is just generally higher. Like, what you get in a grocery store is generally going to be better than what you get in a grocery store, even in, like, nice cities. We're in a large Southern Californian city. Yeah. And it is... Sometimes it's really difficult to find, like, good, fresh produce. And not, you know, 
sell your firstborn into servitude yeah. for it. I think it's, there's a whole culture about simple dishes, ease, processed food. It's just so much a part of American culture um, in a way that I don't think is the same in other countries where it's just like the option, like sure McDonald's is everywhere, but like how popular is it around the world versus how it is here, right? Because there's, of the, I mean, that's tied into capitalism too. That's true. Like, we have to joke that everything is bigger in Texas, but like, we are the Texas of the rest of the world. Yeah. We do everything bigger. And stupider. <laughs> and with less rights. <laughs> and more guns. And a lot more prisoners. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> like, we can't have a conversation about our food culture without having a conversation about our economic culture. Yeah, no. And the reason we have such, an, such a uh, push for convenience meals like, even when you're cooking at home, you'll see, like, if you're like, I want dinner recipes and I want to get a cookbook for, like, weeknight dinners, all of them are marketed as 30 minutes or less. Yeah. Or you can put this together in just under an hour from the time you pick up the knife to the time you plate. I mean, that's what makes, like, what made Rachel Ray successful, right? Yeah. Is it was oh, yeah. that, like, quick 30-minute... Plus, she's cute, so that helps. But, like, this quick 30-minute... With a really like, nice butt. Fit. Like, a really nice butt. She does. She does. She, she, she's thick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so, like, and, like, watching her cook something that could really just be, like, thrown together in your kitchen versus, say, like, watching, like, you know, a Michelin star chef. We're like, yeah, that's fascinating. But am I really going to make duck confit? Like, no. Jamie Oliver with his fucking homemade chicken nuggets. <laughs> Okay, if you guys haven't heard this, Jamie Oliver decided that he was going to go into schools and make homemade breaded chicken nuggets for kids and give them that alongside, like, the McDonald's nugget. And then at the end, he's like, so which one was better? And all of them, every single kid, it was like 30 kids, it was an entire classroom, all of them were like, McDonald's. Yeah. The look on his face, (laughs) oh my god. Well, it's, it's familiarity. It's, like, it's, yeah. it's, I know what that is, especially with kids. Like, you yeah. can't introduce anything new to them without, like, a whole meltdown song and dance. Or having to really associate it. Like, this little one over here is a big fan of, uh, I'm going to spell it because he's here, S-A-U-S-A-G-E, mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the turkey style. Mm. And it has to be links. And so I offered him, like, a McDonald's hamburger once. Mm-hmm. You know, I feed, I'm a monster. I feed my kids fast food or whatever. Oh, you terrible creature. I know, right? And he wouldn't eat the hamburger until I took just the patty out and then said, sausage. <laughs> and he was like, oh, shit, cool, got it. That's what it is. They're clearly different things. But, yeah, it's like a whole, it's a whole song and dance to get your kids to do things. So I'm not surprised if that failed. Yeah, and I'm not either. McDonald's has addictive properties. We know this. Yeah, and like there is, there's really something to be said for safe textures. Like chicken breast does not appeal to every kid. It probably doesn't even appeal to most kids. No, but McDonald's nuggets are so heavily processed that yeah. they don't have that same like stringy texture you get, and they're also clearly not all breast meat. Like, yeah, was it uh, pink? Pink goo. Pink goo, yeah. I mean, look that up, guys, but don't do it while you're eating. Yeah, don't even do it after you eat. Do it, like, with several hours between meals on either side. Yeah, and just know that you're probably going to stay away from McDonald's for, like, a hot minute, because it's 
not great. It's not great. It's not something you really enjoy <laughs> looking at. But uh, so, but final, final thoughts. What do you think of the tomato? Did I do okay? You did. <laughs> you great. Get, you get enough information about the tomato. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cool. Cool. And we'll go. Like I didn't want to go too far into like pasta sauces and ketchup because we want to like that kind of lives in its own space a little bit. I can't wait to do ketchup because ketchup can be completely divorced from the tomato yeah. because there are other varieties. Of I love ketchup, guys. Not as a condiment, like and take it or leave it as the condiment itself. But the very first time I ever used a mind-altering substance. I deep dived the history of ketchup. Nice. A legal in many states. Legal in many states. Not one that is currently federally illegal entirely. Yes, you're not talking about ecstasy. You didn't go on no. a deep dive on ecstasy. No, no, no. no. It, is, uh, it is one that is a plant and it just grows that way. And if you should so happen to set it on fire. Yeah. It's not, it's not, a, it's not bad. Yeah. Cool, cool. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. That was... Uh, that was my very first experience with that, and it blew my mind. And now I'm kind of low-key obsessed with ketchup. Nice. And I might do, I don't know, we might do like a little short one where I deep dive specifically into marinara uh, for future purposes. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, because it's all culminating somewhere, guys. But anyhow, that's hints. Hints at the future. Uh, okay, so what is our, this is me really hinty, what's our next episode on herb blends right yeah, herb blends specifically italian herb blends italian herb blends yes okay so yeah there's a there's a thought process yeah cool cool yeah, uh, pluggables okay so find us always wherever you get your podcasts except apple music I, yeah or apple Podcasts, whatever they're calling it now yeah don't do that one <laughs> we have history between bites pod on instagram history between bites facebook we have our patreon patreon.com backslash history between bites it's a forward slash but yeah forward slash yep regular regular old slash you don't need to like <laughs> sorry guys um, it's okay sam lives in like the sixth century yeah i live in books i don't know what dot com means i'm like what page <laughs> what what cuneiform tablet? Uh, I did the research for this on my brand new Kindle that my husband was so nice to buy me, and I don't know if I'm ever going to do research ever on again an on an version else. ever. I just can't. Like, I need I need to have the book in front of me. It's easier for me to like manipulate where things are at in physical form. Like, I keep being like, "What page am I on?" Like, I'm, I'm a mess. But I'll get it together. Uh, so yeah, so next time is herbs and I don't know, it's delicious, so we're just gonna eat. This is dinner. Yeah. And this I think is we got a thumbs up for Mr. Birdie. Fantastic. Yeah. Alright. Cool. All uh, right. Also we have our YouTube channel that will be coming soon. Uh Arthur Table. It is in the works. And if you want to shoot us an email about anything, history between bites at gmail.com. Until Italian or blend, stay hungry for history. going through cancer treatments uh she liked to therapy shop a lot 
And one of her little tiny joys in life was making sure she was all the way across the store from my mom, (laughs) finding something with a rooster on it because she was obsessed with roosters, and yelling across the store, Duck! Come look at this giant cock I found! (laughs) It was her favorite. I saw her do this in, like, Hobby Lobby, Home Goods, and Michael's. Oh my god. All in the same day. I love that she did it at Hobby Lobby. Of course she did it in Hobby Lobby. Fuck Hobby Lobby. And she's one of the reasons that I love cooking and food. 